weeks left, including this one, in 1 John. We spent almost three months, almost three months in 1 John, and so we are nearing the end of it. Uh, but we still have, we still have uh, quite a bit to, to work through. Tonight's topic and, and these verses are, are very tough to deal with, especially the first half of them. They're very difficult. So we need to be, um, we're, we're going to keep it true to the word, and uh, we're going to go through it pretty slow. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're, we're going to get started. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just, uh, we thank you for today. God, we, we thank you for, um, for who you are. God, we come tonight uh, tired, maybe broken, worn out, maybe school stressing us out, Lord. Maybe we're confused. God, our hearts are full of our own wants and our own desires. Father, break us tonight. Teach us what it means to place our trust in you so that we can have the eternal life that we will talk about tonight. Father, apart from you, no one can have life. And help us to remember that. Help us to remember that you are for our good and for our joy. God, I pray that all that we do glorifies you. Father, and I pray for these students as they look at this text tonight, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit reveals um, to them what you want them to take away. It's in your name we pray, amen. We're going to look back at the first part of uh, 1 John 5 before we uh, get into our text for tonight. Last week we looked at what it means to be a child of God. Remember, this was not the first time, this was not the first time John brought this up in the book of 1 John. So he brings back up being a child of God. And we looked at three different character, characteristics of what that looked like. First was to have the right, the right belief. First characteristic was the right belief. Belief in God. John stated that all who believe Jesus is the Christ are children of God. And we are born of him, which means we have been gifted sonship. Uh, John also goes on to say that believers will not only love the Father, but also love God's children, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should not only love our parents, we should also love our siblings. Remember we talked about that last week. That one is difficult at times. I understand. I disliked my siblings when I was your age. All right? My sister, man, would she get on my nerves. And man, sometimes she still gets on my nerves. But you know what? I love her. And why do I love her? Because she's my sister, and she's also my sister in Christ. Okay? She is also, hopefully, going to be a babysitter for my child at times. A free babysitter for my child at times. Maybe that's, we'll see how it goes the first few times. Maybe I'll rescind that offer to her. Uh, but... We have to love our other brothers and sisters of Christ. If we do not love them, that's not a great reflection of God and of other believers. If we can't love our own, how can we love others who are not like us? We went on to talk about the second characteristic. Man, I've struggled with that word. 
the second thing, which was uh, obedience to God's commands. And when we love God, we will keep his commands. And those commands include loving others. The third characteristic, I did better that time, is love. Love. That's when our love is real. Obedience is not an, an outcome. It's not an outcome of loving God. It's part of it. Obedience is not only an outcome, it's, it's um, of loving God, it's, it's part of it. We talked about how his commands are not burdensome. Burdensome. We talked about how that's contrary to most, uh, the most people's belief. Jason's laughing because he might remember my t-shirt story from last week about the contrary to popular belief, I am good looking. <laughs> I asked my mother if she still had that shirt the other day and she said, no, for your good I donated to Goodwill. I said, my mama loves me. My mama loves me. And that's how she proves it right there. So it's, it's not always easy. It's not always easy to obey God's commands. There's a lot of resistance to that in our world today. Sin has a price, though, and it will always have consequences. We also saw how, though, the victory... Is already won. We look back at John 16, 33, which says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' victory has overcome the evil one and has set his people free from the power of Satan. When we, and we looked at how when we place our faith, when we place our faith in Jesus, that nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from God's love. We talked about the end of Romans 8, and we reflected on that passage. And how our, our big takeaway from last week is how the victory is already won. And our victory is in Jesus. Before we get going on the verses for tonight, I want to see how many of you guys have one of those spinners things. If you have one of those spinners, hold it up for me real quick. All right. Here's what I want you to do, all right? From now until, from now until the end of uh, our breakout groups, so I want you to take it, and I want you to put it in your pocket, all right? Take it. Take it and put it in your pocket. If your neighbor takes it out during it and starts playing with it, don't hit him. Just tell him, tell him, please put that away. You're distracting me from what the Lord has to teach me. I'm not... All right, the cubes too, okay? The cubes too, all right? Thank you. Grab your Bible, open up to 1 John 5. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 12 tonight. 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. And I'm going to read that for us. It says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by the water, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the, and the water and the blood, and, by these, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God 
has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So we see here in verse verse 6 it says he who came by water and blood. He who came by water and blood. There are three different ways that theologians interpret this, which makes it even more difficult for us to understand that there's three people who, who spend their life dedicated to studying Scripture, and they, they, they get three different views out of this. So we're going to look at, at all three of those, and then we're going to talk about the one w- which is most widely accepted. First, when we look at when it says, He who came by water and by blood... What does the water and the blood mean? The first viewpoint would be the water is referring to Jesus' baptism and the blood would refer to uh, the Lord's Supper. The drink of the Lord's Supper. So that's what, what, where one camp stands. That, that when it says that he came by the water, so that referred to his baptism, and by blood referring to uh, the Lord's Supper. Second camp would believe that it's referring to uh, when, when Jesus was on the cross and he was stabbed by a spear. And, and, and what, came, what came pouring out of him when that happened? Water. And? So the blood, the blood, blood while he was on the cross, okay, and the water, the water came out of him. You see this in John 19, okay? So they, they, they would believe that. Um, <laughs> that's not good. I think that just needs plugged in in the back of the computer. So, so what, what happened there is it, they, they believed it was from the blood on the cross and the water when the spear was, was stabbed in him. All right? Now the, the third and final belief on this topic, because this is most, most widely accepted, is the water is referring to his baptism. And the blood is referring to his crucifixion. So we see a little bit of a mix of the two of those camps right there. So the water from his baptism and the blood from his crucifixion. That's a weird way to talk about someone when you say, but he is who came by wa- water and blood. What? Like, that's just weird. No one really says that about other people. But it's, it's important, as we will, we will see. And so he's referring to, obviously, Jesus here. And then he continues on to say, and not only just the water and the spirit, or not only the water and the blood, the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. So, if in support, in support of Jesus' historical of Jesus' historical life and his death, John appeals to the testimony of the Spirit. He appeals to the testimony of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit is needed because Jesus' divinity, his divinity, is a scandal and a stumbling block 
to the world. The Spirit is trustworthy because He is truth, and therefore God speaks truth. We see that in John 14, 17, and also John 16, 13. The primary way that God speaks, or sorry, that the Holy, or the Holy Spirit speaks is through God's Word. God's Word. You got your Bible. That's the primary way the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And it convicts the heart. The Spirit convicts the heart of an individual. I don't think we realize how important of a role the Holy Spirit plays when we read Scripture. Let's jump down to verse 9. Verse 9 says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. God's own authority and approval has been stamped on the truth of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. John uses the argument here that less is greater. He uses the argument that less is greater. If we believe the, the, the testimony of men, then, like, duh, we should obviously believe the testimony of God. In Jewish courts, the testimony uh, of two or three witnesses would be sufficient to find truth. The testimony of two to three witnesses would be sufficient to find truth. If, uh, how much more sufficient though, how much more sufficient would it be to have the testimony of three divine witnesses in the Trinity? Let's look at verse, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. John now begins to discuss belief and unbelief. When John is, what John is saying is that if you believe in God, if you believe in God, then you have Him. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. You have the Spirit, the witness. He says it right here at the beginning of verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony. Where? What's that next word he uses? All right, you guys weren't paying attention. Gotcha. And it also depends on your translation. Whoever, I'm reading out of the ESV. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony. I'll help you out. In. In. In himself. In himself. That's where the testimony is. The testimony here is referring to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit. The testimony is in you. If you believe in the Son of God. If you do not believe in the Son of God then you do not have the testimony or the Holy Spirit inside of you. Verse 11. This is where it starts getting juicy. 
People not say that word? Uh, Bonja does. I can't say that word, okay? You guys are aware of that. All right, verse 11. Verse 11 says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The nature of this testimony involves God's witnesses concerning His Son. His witness concerning His Son. John does not, however, specifically state he does not specifically state the content of this testimony, but we know it's nothing other than eternal life. Therefore, the question becomes, do we accept God's testimony? Do we accept God's testimony? And our answer, our answer will determine whether or not we have eternal life. The last part of this verse is so important. The eternal life that John is talking about is only obtainable through God's Son. He is the only means to eternal life. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Some people believe in something that's called parallelism. There's a few other uh, different names for it that would believe that all roads lead to heaven. That goes against what uh, Jesus teaches in, in, in uh, John 14.6, but also, once again, right, right here. The, this life, this eternal life, He is the only way. Life in His Son. Verse 12. Verse 12 is uh, one that just continually stands out as I read this passage over and over again. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This verse continues on in the explanation of the eternal life that's described in verse 11. In, in, parallel, uh, in a parallel clause, John states the relation between having the Son and having life. To possess the Son is to possess life in all of its fullness. To possess the Son is to possess life in all of its fullness. There is a correlation between having the Son and having life. This is big. And you might, well, you might say, well, I've been taught that for years. But think about it this way, though. Remember, I just said, if you have the Son, then you are able to have the fullness of life. There was a guy named David Brainerd who was born in 1718. So a long, long time ago. He's super dead now. Um, he was born to a family. He had nine siblings. Nine siblings. His parents passed away. They would have had, if they were cars back then, they probably would have had a 12 passenger van. Um, which, no, not hating on it. If you do have a 12 passenger van, just stating a fact. Um, his, both of his parents passed away by the time he was 14 years old. And he, uh, he was li living with, you know, with his siblings. Then uh, at the age of 20, 
he decided he would attend Yale University. All right, a pretty prestigious school of our day. Yale was one of three colleges that were around then. Harvard and William and Mary were the other ones. He wanted to study how to become a minister, a pastor, preacher. So he went to school and started studying that. After the first year, after the first year that he, that he spent there, he, he got pretty sick. And he kept on coughing up blood. And Yale said, you know, you're pretty sick, man. You, you can't stay here. You need to go home. So they sent him home. And he was really frustrated by that. Then the next, the next year, they let him come back. And he was sitting in a tutor, uh, tutoring session. He was being tutored by somebody. And he, I guess, just didn't like the guy or something. And he told the tutor, get this, okay. This, is, this was the ultimate roast of that day. He told the tutor, he said, you have less grace than a chair. I know. Hold on, it gets better. You know the consequences for him saying that? He got kicked out of Yale. True story. True story. He got kicked out of Yale for that. All right? So he goes back home. And the whole way home, he's thinking, what am I going to do? Because you couldn't be a pastor or a minister or a preacher in that day if you did not either attend and have graduated from Yale, Harvard, or European Institute. And he can't go back overseas. He's stuck in the, whatever we call it then, Americas or whatever. All right? We weren't even a country yet then. All right? Which, you know, we didn't even think about. So he couldn't be a pastor in Connecticut. That was just in Connecticut. And that's where he lived. Because he did not, he did not, he didn't graduate from Yale or Harvard or European Institute. So he decides he's going to go and be a missionary to the Native Americans. So he gets on a horse and, no, seriously though. He gets on a horse, and he rides up to what's modern-day Long Island. And he begins sharing the gospel with these Indians, these Native Americans. And he continues, he continues to get more and more sick. Right, he gets more and more sick as, he is, as he's sharing the gospel with uh, these Native Americans in, in Long Island. And... He's, only, he's young. He's young. He, he's 26 years old. He gets taken in by a guy who maybe some of you have heard of. His name is Jonathan Edwards. He's one of the fathers of, of the American church. Jonathan Edwards is a great man, has some great books out there. I would look them up if I were you. Religious Affections is one of them, and Freedom of the Will. There are some great books by Jonathan Edwards. Look them up. They are super old, and he is also super dead. Uh, but look them up because they are, they are great. They might be a little difficult because of uh, the translation uh, of that day, but I would encourage you to read that as well. So Brainerd, Brainerd kept a journal. He kept a journal that he would write in frequently. That was his prayer journal. And after he died, Jonathan Edwards loved it so much that he thought that he 
he should publish that journal and adding a few additional notes to it. So Edwards had it published. And that book traveled around. And, and it's still around today. And I was actually just reading it the other night uh, when I couldn't, I couldn't fall asleep. I'm getting a little anxious about this whole baby thing. So sleeping's been hard. And so I, I kept, uh, I was reading his diary. I've had it for maybe a year and a half, and I, I read tidbits at a time. I almost said timbits. Um, tidbits. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little hungry, I guess. And so looking at, at what he had taught, or what he had written down, it had some really powerful prayers, considering his circumstances. If you follow me on, on Instagram, I posted this yesterday. And I'm going to read this again. I'm going to read this to you. And then I want, I want to talk about what, how that relates to what we have talked about so far tonight. So on November 22nd, 1744, this is three years before Brainerd passes away. He is 26 years old. He's talking about the sickness that he has uh, while trying to minister and love on these Native Americans. He writes, such fatigues and hardships as these serve to wean me more from the earth, and I trust will make heaven the sweeter. Formerly, formerly when I was thus exposed to cold, rain, etc., I was ready to please myself with the thoughts of enjoying a comfortable house, a warm fire, and other outward comforts. But now... Now have less place in my heart. They have less place in my heart through the grace of God, and my eye is more to God for comfort. In this world, I expect tribulation, and it does not, and it does not now, as formerly appear strange to me. I don't, in such seasons of difficult difficulty, flatter myself with the thought that it will be better hereafter but rather think about how much worse it might be. How much greater trials for other children, others of God's children have endured, and how much greater are yet perhaps reserved for me. Blessed be the God that makes, that he, he makes and is the comfort to me. Under my sharpest trials, and, and, and scarce ever lets these Thoughts be attended with terror or melancholy, but they are attended frequently with great joy. What, what Brainerd is saying is that I'm going through some tough stuff. These things are really hard, but I can no longer think that way. I can no longer think that way. These hardships will be here on the earth. But not only will they be here, they make heaven so much sweeter. So much sweeter. Not only that, but think about those who, who have it worse off than we do. Other of God's children who have it worse than us. Not only that, but also think about um, how much worse it might be for us. We will go through trials. You will Go through trials. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that. But it's true. And, and like Brainerd said at the beginning, it'll make heaven the sweeter. 
It'll make heaven the sweeter. Let's look at the, the last part of verse 12. Band, you guys can come on up. It says, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. If you do have the Son, you do have life. If you don't have the Son, you do not have life. It's important to note here that, that it says the Son of God. Whoever does not have the Son of God, you cannot have the Father. You cannot have the Father, but not have the Son. You cannot have the Son, but not have the Father. I think I said that correctly. But you cannot have the Father without acknowledging the Son. You cannot have the Father without acknowledging the Son. We said tonight, we saw tonight in 1 John, He who has the Son has life. Whoever has the Son has life. To have life, you have to have the Son. You do not have the Son. You don't have life. In order to have the Son, you have to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way you can have the Son. And that's the only way you can have life. I am sure, I am almost positive that all in all of you in here want that life that John is talking about. It's eternal life. It does not end. And it's with the Father. It's with the Son. It's with the Spirit. In order to have the Son, you have to trust in the Son. Do you trust in the Son? Have you placed your trust in the Son? Do you have life? Do you want life? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father,